touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And we're going to take you to Mars one Maybe, maybe it's, yeah. it's a possibility. So, so Mars That's One, the plans. yeah, Mars One. It's this, it's this proposed project that would uh, set up a human colony on Mars, funded mostly by the televisation of the entire process. Yeah. So, um, yeah, essentially turning a a a space exploration and colonization project into a reality TV show in a way. Actually, more than just in a way. A, a giant reality TV show, an entire like 13-year series of reality TV shows. Which is pretty impressive to sit there and say that any particular property is going to maintain uh, interest in the public for at least 13 years. Uh, and maybe it will, but um, it's it's kind of an interesting approach to this this question of when are we going to actually set up a colony Somewhere other than on Earth, like uh, like on Mars, and and proposing um, the fact that it can be not only commercial but um but but driven specifically by public interest, really. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, because because here's the thing: is that we know that the government officials that are behind things, uh, like like the space industry in the United States, anyway, uh, are facing increasingly difficult. Battles in in uh, funding, right? It's it's getting harder and harder to get um, uh, a working budget, and some of that is due to problems that the the various space industries have had, like uh, specifically what NASA has undergone, where NASA's had a few projects, more than a few maybe, that some would argue were uh, improperly governed, so that they ballooned out of control as far as budget and timeline is considered. Oh, and par- partially this was also due to just uh, everyone at the, at the outset not understanding exactly what kinds of issues were going to crop up along the way and what kinds of problems would need to be solved. Right, and sometimes it was because, you know, it wasn't necessarily mismanagement, but it might be that, you know, you have very limited uh, people you can go to when you need something like an enormous rocket. And if the only company that provides the enormous rockets that you need says, you know, I know that originally we were going to say that this was going to be, you know, $20 million per rocket, but in reality it looks like it's going to be closer to 65. You don't have a lot of options left. So right. it's, I, I don't mean to suggest that NASA was really bad at managing this stuff. It's just that a lot of uh, se- uh, several high-profile projects uh, ended up getting bogged down in lots of problems. Which and when you're and when you're publicly funded, it's a lot more difficult to handle that. Uh, this, this private funding could hypothetically you know, eke around some of those problems. You could sell more advertising space or something like that. And, right, uh, right. I mean, that, that's the whole idea behind the privatization of space exploration, right? Mm-hmm. Is that they aren't uh, they aren't tied down to things like tax income. They they don't have to go and petition they the government. They don't have to answer to uh, the taxpayers. That's when, right. Mm-hmm. That's right. But they do have to raise those funds some other way. Right. Because it's not like they just magically have access to those giant rockets. Uh-huh. Uh, the supposed funds that Mars One will require to to establish the settlement is $6 billion. That sounds so low. Phenomenally low to so me. So low. Uh, but but it's it's starting with just four settlers. Um, 
uh, to to expand hypothetically by teams of four every two years, and they're aiming for the first round of settlers to to land in um, 2023. Uh, is is the is the current proposed date? Which is but, ten but, years away. Yeah, I mean this is inc- the this is already blowing my mind, and we haven't even gotten into what the actual challenges are yet. But just the challenge of getting the materials together, testing your your various uh, spacecraft, because obviously you're going to have to design special spacecraft for these teams to go up in. Mm-hmm. And they're and they're, make they're, this they're talking right now to uh, to Elon Musk and the other kids over at SpaceX. Right, right. Which about is, about using their their stuff, which but, would be important. I mean, mm-hmm. the, like using the Dragon spacecraft, that right. kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, obviously. That would be something they'd have to take into consideration. It just seems it seems really ambitious. That's not to say that it can't be done or that they shouldn't try. I think being ambitious is fantastic. Oh, absolutely. It's just one of those things where having seen how difficult it is to get a space project, and I hate to use this phrase, off the ground, uh, tells me that Things are going to have to go really, really well for them to make that budget and to make that timeline. Right. Maybe it will. But, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit more about what this whole project is. So yeah, the first team lands in 2023. Now, the thing is that, uh, in order for anyone to land on Mars and have any expectation of being able to survive there, uh, other stuff's gonna have to get there first. A whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah. Because, uh, Mars doesn't have any supermarkets. So you would need some way of getting supplies there. And I, I mean, you know, you can't just pack everything you would need in your into a single rocket. That would be very inefficient. That would be way too much weight. Right. Yeah. The more weight you add to your launch vehicle, the more fuel you need. And the more fuel you need, the more weight you add to your launch vehicle. There does come a point where your launch vehicle is too heavy for you to be able to launch it using the fuel sources that we typically use here on sure. Earth. And and they are they are planning a um a space launch rather than an Earth launch of the actual crew module. Interesting. I did not read that part. So mm-hmm. you'll have to tell me more about that if uh, if you get a chance. Sure, sure. But uh, but but let's let, let's back all of this back up. Uh, the so so the Mars One project is run by the uh by 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 two parts. It's a there's a nonprofit foundation called Mars One, mm-hmm. and there's a for profit company called Interplanetary Media Group, which. Makes me laugh so hard that they are interplanetary, serving all your needs, whether you are on Earth or somewhere else. <laughs> That's, I, I do wonder whether whether the nice people who founded it are on Earth or somewhere else. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that is a fair, fair request. I, <laughs> like, are you from here? Uh, this, this, uh, these, bo- both of these of these uh, organizations are 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 based in the Netherlands, uh, co-founded by Baz Landsdorp and Arno Wielders. Um, All right. And uh, uh, Landsdorp says that he got the idea when he saw the revenue figures for the International Olympic Committee a bunch of years ago. Huh. And said, "Hey, there's money there. There's money there. There's there's money in in televising these." Epic human events. And you also uncovered that, uh, that interplanetary media group, uh, the, you know, there, there are different organizations that own shares in interplanetary media group. Uh, who owns the majority? The Mars that? One Foundation oh. owns almost 90% of the shares so in interplanetary media group. The nonprofit arm of Mars One owns 90% of the for-profit arm of the project. 
it's it's also the sole supervisor of the for-profit sector's operations. Wait, so the non-profit organization oversees the for-profit arm of this. Now, now this is just it raises alarm flags in my mind. However, I will say if this works, it's a brilliant way of of funding this because uh, the nonprofit part can take the, any money that's generated directly and, from right, and there's no there's no processing fee or whatever you want. To, there's not a convenience fee mm-hmm. here because they have this governance and they have this ownership of the the for profit arm. And if that money indeed is going uh, to fund this Mars project, that's exactly what they're going to need in order to have that that. A massive amount of capital they're going to need right, right, for because, all the stuff because the foundation is going to be is going to be the owner of the settlement on Mars and uh, and the employer of the mission teams. Right, and then IMG, the the uh, media group, is essentially in charge of uh, of generating funds through things like the televised broadcast of the process of selecting people to go to Mars, and then once they get there, their ongoing. Uh, experience on Mars to be live streamed, televised, twenty four seven, three hundred and sixty five days a year. Yeah, it's Big Brother, Red Planet edition, and then they also, but they're also going to be generating money through things like uh, merchandising. Oh, right, right, and IMG will, in fact, hold exclusive rights um, to use this project to generate revenue through broadcasting, advertising, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So you've got this interesting approach to trying to. Uh, to fund space colonization. Obviously, the only way this really works is if it captures the public's attention enough for them to want to watch it, right? Because otherwise, that flow of revenue isn't going to come it's in. It's going to dry up immediately. And, yeah. yeah, and then mm-hmm. they don't have any money to build or buy all the stuff they need in order to get things to Mars. So let's talk a little bit about what they are looking for, because clearly they need to have people right. who want to go. And 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 I would I would argue that that part of um this this application process that we're about to talk about proves that the interest is there because within the first 2 weeks that applications were open they got 78,000 applicants. Yeah, that's that's a that's a huge number and the application process is still open as of the recording of this podcast. Uh right, yeah, this is uh it, it opened in April of 2013. Uh mm-hmm. we are recording this in May of 2013 and it will be open until August 31st of 2013. Right. So So there's still time. Still time and they they say that they expect uh half a million applicants by the time it's all over. Cuz obviously that that first rush is from all the people who hear about it at the very beginning. Now before you rush out and fill out your application, maybe you should uh, learn a little bit more about the parameters of the mission. This is more likely than not a one-way ticket. You will not be coming back from Mars. If you were to go to Mars on this mission, um, there is every possibility that that is where you would have to spend the rest of your life. The, the expense incurred to get you back here would basically not be worth you. Well, no, no offense to you. Beyond that, I mean, but, just the logistics mm-hmm. of designing a a spacecraft that could lift Enter off Mars of and Mars, then lift yeah. back off. Sure. Yeah, you'd have to have even more fuel so that you could escape the gravity of Mars. Remember, Mars's gravity is is not that different from Earth's. Yeah. So you would have the same issue. Now the the atmosphere's thinner. So you'd have less uh, air resistance, but that's kind of negligible when you're talking about gravity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it, to, to create a, uh, 
a spacecraft that could get there and then launch from the surface and come back is beyond the scope of this project. So that leaves you literally on Mars. So if you don't want to spend the rest of your life there, you probably don't want to um, to apply. To apply very seriously. They're, anyway. look, they're looking for people who are at least 18 years of age or older. Uh, keeping in mind, you will be 10 years older if you were selected to be one of the four people who go up on that first launch. Uh, uh, as of as of May 7th, the oldest person to apply was 71 years old, yeah. um, which seems like probably he won't be chosen. Yeah. No, we don't know that for sure. Uh, and it's interesting that uh, how they're going to go about choosing the people who go through this process. Right. There's um, there, there's well, there's first of all a whole bunch of of uh, application of, of selection criteria. Yeah. And uh, did you want to do you want to say sure, about sure. That? They're looking for people who have the following characteristics. And this is because they need people who are going to be psychologically prepared for the uh the for challenges the, for, the, for the training and for the trip and to be stuck on Mars for the rest of their lives. Right. And they have to not only be have the psychological uh, um, foundation, but they also need to be willing and able to pick up new skills, because clearly uh, you're, you're talking about a tiny number of people ultimately on that colony. It's just, you know, not not many at all. So you everyone needs to be able to do pretty much everything, just like astronauts aboard the International Space Station have to be adept at working with all the different systems and be able to react if anything goes wrong. Same thing holds true on the colony. So, you know, it's if if you were to apply, you'd have to be willing to go through some very rigorous training to learn how to deal with uh, any situation that they can come up with that could conceivably happen while you're on the colony. And the plan is for about six, six to seven years of training before launch. Right. For the and first group. Which, you know, also on television. Right. Uh, so the characteristics they're looking for, they're looking for resiliency. And they they uh, break these out by practical applications. So for resiliency, they mention that your thought processes have to be persistent uh, you persevere and remain productive, even under difficult circumstances. You see the connection between your internal and external self, meaning that you're very self-reflective. These get a little metaphysical as they go on. Uh, you are at your best when things are at their worst. Uh, that is not me. I'm already out. <laughs> uh, I mostly turn snarky when things are at their worst. Yeah, yeah, you do. Also when they're at their best. You have indomitable spirit. Nope, mine's totally dominable. Uh, you understand the purpose of actions may not be clear in the moment, but there is good reason and you trust those who guide you. That's terrifying to me, which is essentially saying, shut up and do your work. Mm. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> I understand what they're saying. They're saying like, look, we may tell you to do something that requires you to... Uh, to endure uncomfortable circumstances for an extended amount of time, but trust us, it's it's all on your best interest. That always that always gets me a little worried. Uh, they and that you have a can-do attitude. <laughs> the next criteria is adaptability. Clearly, this would be necessary on this kind of project. Oh, right, right. Like 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 Jonathan was saying a second ago, you need to be able to do everything up there. So out there. Right. And, and I love that one of them, one of the, I won't go through all of the, uh, practical ap- applications of this one, but one of them is, you know, your boundaries and how and when to extend them. I didn't know that boundaries were that flexible, right? 
like I, I guess if you have boundaries Maybe of what like you are. Maybe it's like one of those international boundaries. It's kind of, you know, always, always in question. And right. Not really... Where it's just the dotted line instead yeah. of the solid line. Mm-hmm. I think maybe it's like uh, you would be willing to do this and no more. But you, in certain situations, would be Are willing to willing do to more. willing to totally do more. Yeah. Again, kind of terrifying. Um, and then uh, next would be curiosity. Which, again, if you don't have a sense of curiosity, I can't imagine Why are you, you going to Mars? Unless you're just yeah. sick of everyone here, uh, which, I mean, maybe you are. Maybe you're just a misanthrope and you're oh, thinking, I want like, a team of total misanthropes going just a to whole Mars. Bunch of people that like, would be great. So it would just be like the Algonquin round table, but in space, <laughs> which would be kind of awesome. Uh, so which it, I would I would watch that show. <laughs> and they they talk about the desire to transfer knowledge to others and not just showcasing what you know or what others do not know. I think that knocks me out too because I prefer the second version of that. No, seriously, I, that's one thing I actually do like. I like to I like to share knowledge because I find knowledge exciting. That's that's probably why you're on a podcast. That that is several why I'm podcasts. On a podcast. Yeah. yeah, a couple of them. And then there's the ability to trust, which would be very important since you're working with people who, you know, your as, life depends mm-hmm. upon their work just as their lives depend upon yours. Mm-hmm. And then you have to be creative and resourceful, which means that, uh, you know, kind of have that hacker mentality that if a problem comes up, you find a way to solve it, even if you don't have a uh, uh, like a a manual that tells you what to do in that specific situation that you can adapt to the situation as necessary. You know, maybe the manual tells you to react in a specific way if one uh, particular situation arises, but maybe the situation is more complicated than that. And you can't just do one solution because that's not going to meet all the criteria to fix the problem. That's why you have to be both creative and resourceful. Right. So uh, that's, that's like the, the basic, um, features that they're looking for in the people who apply. And then the way they choose or the way they start to narrow down the the candidates is also kind of interesting. It's, like I said, the uh, applicant pool was opened up on April 22nd, mm-hmm. uh, 2013, or I said April. It was on April 22nd. And um, it costs, it does cost money to apply between $5 and $75, depending on the wealth of your country of origin. Gotcha. So if you're from a more affluent country, then mm-hmm. your your application fee will be higher. I think the fee here in the United States is $38. Interesting. So it's 38 That I, I'm curious to see who, which countries are on the top of the scale. Uh, I did not look that up, so I have no idea. But uh, um, <laughs> I'm just wondering out loud because... You know, it's that it's that uh, national pride coming out. What do you mean thirty eight dollars? Why aren't we seventy five dollars? Not that I'm applying. But. This uh, this this applicant pool is going to be pared down uh, during the course of several rounds. Um, the first is by uh, popularity because part of the application is um is is you know your your resume and this very short psychological workup, and then part of it is a YouTube video that you are supposed to upload. So how many people are watching and liking your video? Right. It's like having a clout score for going to Mars. Yeah. And again, I could see someone who is just really misanthropic winning just because people are like, yeah, get rid of this guy. Send Shoot him, him into out. space. John. Um, so, so, so the, this first round is going to be by the, by the popularity of your, of your YouTube video. It's like American Idol, but you shoot them into space. Yeah. Uh, all yeah. Right, go ahead. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, by, by the application material, the company is actually looking at your resume. Right, at, right. Um, in this they first round. They don't want to send a whole bunch of people who obviously have no business working any kind of intricate 
uh, system. Yeah, right. There's there's no point in, in advancing those people to the next round. Uh, the next round, speaking of, is going to be uh, selected down by region and based on um, the person's health, uh, various background checks and in-person interviews. Also very important. Now, obviously, you want to have people who have those features we talked about earlier that are well-rounded, that can work well with others. You don't want to uh, send a bunch of psychopaths up in Mars, people who don't care about anyone else, because that would be... Uh, well, counterproductive to the the mission at large. Sure, sure. Misanthropes, yes. Uh, total psychopaths, no. Not so much. No. Um, uh, after that, you're going to start seeing more of a more of a crowdsourcing process um, via via reality TV shows, um, internet polls, stuff like that. Right. Even when they narrow this down to their pool of potential astronauts, and I think they're they were aiming to get to around forty total. Uh, when they finally boil it down, I've seen a couple different numbers, but mm-hmm. uh, but but yeah, the idea being that not all forty of those people would necessarily end up on those colonies. It's rather that this is the pool of astronauts that could go up, and uh, then uh, like throughout the television series, we might even see something where the audience decides which are which four would be the first ones to go. Uh, right, right. It's it's going to be they're they're going to start narrowing it down by by TV and stuff, and uh, two. Two people, uh, a man and a woman, would be selected from each applicant country. Um, huh. And then they will, uh, them plus a few judge favorites who are not crowdsourced, will um, proceed to an international round and then be grouped into fours, um, some 50 teams of, of four. So 200 people. And uh, which, w- which will be narrowed to six teams who will train full time. Gotcha. So then you're down to the 20. Then you're down to that. Right, right. right, right, um, right. And then, yeah, uh, in, in 2022, that would be when um, they would select whatever groups are ready to go. The company would select the groups that they think are good to actually astronaut. And, right. um, and then, uh, the, then the world gets to call in and vote on which people get shot into space. Yep. This is incredible. <laughs> All right. And then um, uh, uh, you had... Uh, a, a specific quote from someone who had applied, right? Uh, yeah, uh, NBC News uh, found out that uh, sci-fi author David Brin, um, uh, who wrote, for example, uh, The Postman, I believe, okay, and and a bunch of other stuff, he told NBC that that people who can't imagine any sane person making this choice, uh, uh, editors note the choice to go to Mars forever and never come back, right, simply aren't envisioning the wide range of human diversity. Um, and and was just talking about you know the fact that he's got three kids and that at the very earliest date that Mars One was going to launch, uh, he he would be he would be seventy five. Which means his kids are grown up and on their they're doing their own thing at that point. Uh huh. They're in their careers, so it's not like it's not like he's abandoning children. Sure, sure. And you know he he might choose to to spend these last few years, years of his life doing something truly remarkable. Interesting. And uh, we should say that the the early stages of this would require uh, the candidates who were selected to move on in the process to go undergo some extensive training, like we've mentioned before, but they'd probably be going someplace really remote and pretty desolate. Yeah, uh, one, one of the plans of the group is to um, to create on Earth, in, in, in some cold, desolate, desert tundra kind of area, a, um, a little faux Mars base. And for training purposes that'll become really important because you have to you know you have to understand what are what's the harsh reality of trying to live on mars but before we jump into that discussion we want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsor 
All right. So we've laid out what the project wants to do and kind of their general approach, the idea of sending up supplies uh, ahead of time and then landing people hopefully by 2023 mm-hmm. um, and uh, four people and then initially and then another four every two years and uh, that they're having this Mars colony. So let's talk about why this would be a monumentally difficult task like what what are what are the challenges that they face because there are quite a few um you're yeah. you're, you're dealing you're dealing with not only when you get to mars um it it not not having an atmosphere the the well it has a thin atmosphere it doesn't uh, well, have a breathable sure. atmosphere I, right correct sorry it not having the atmosphere that earth does that lets you you know go out barefoot and walk around right right um yeah, not only that, but there's uh well, we'll get into it. Sure. Let's let's start with um well, let's start with the dirt. Yeah. Mars uh, dirt. Because cause Mars dirt is toxic. Yeah. Uh, just like Britney Spears. Oh. No, wait, she just did that song. That's I guess I guess you could say either one that you wanted to. I'm not gonna argue either point. Um okay. so the the dust that covers Mars is called regolith. Mm-hmm. If I am pronouncing that correctly. You are. I, you excellent. Are. Win. Um it's it's really human unfriendly. It um, contains a bunch of things. For example, uh, hmm. perchlorate. Perchlorate. Yep. Thank you. Uh, which, which is a group of chemicals that are uh, used as oxidizers in rocket fuel. Yeah. And if that doesn't give you an indication, it it sucks to to breathe in. Yeah, uh, uh, exposure can can cause serious damage to your thyroid. Wow. Yikes. Um, which is an important bit. Um, uh, lots of silicates. Um, Sil- sil- silicates, silicates, silicates. You're cool. right. Uh, uh, Trust most, your instincts. Most commonly, uh, including feldspar, uh, pyroxene, mm-hmm. and olivine. Mm-hmm. Um, all of which react with water to form hydrogen peroxide, hydroxyl, and superoxide. Um, all of which uh, uh, quartz dust does, and um, is blamed for things like lung cancer and uh, silicosis right. in miners. Which, which basically means that you inhale. This this dust and it reacts with the water in your lungs and it is not good. Right, right. This is stu- it. It starts to form chemicals that can be very harmful and lead us to a not living situation. <laughs> right, right. Another another thing in there is gypsum, um, which is a sulfate mineral that uh, forms again in the presence of water. Uh, this one isn't actually toxic the way that the silicates are, but. Mm-hmm. Um, on the level of coal dust, it is an eye, skin, and respiratory irritant. So obviously, uh, we would have to take precautions against getting dust into any habitable area in the Mars One colony. Oh, right. And again, because of the atmosphere situation, you're not going to have people running around barefoot in Mars dust. However, um, it's a very sticky substance, really, right. uh, and, and especially due to um, just uh, like static electricity, it's going to wind up getting on all the equipment and. You know, even if you get it out through through air filters in some kind of airlock, it's going to get into the system. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where you really have to design like a clean room type environment, the same kind of environments that we think of for creating a microprocessor, where even a single mote of dust can ruin uh, a sheet of silicon wafers when you're trying to design a, a microprocessor because you're designing things on such a tiny scale. We would need that level of precision to. Uh, to ensure the health of anyone who's living on one of these colonies. Not to say that it can't be done, but when you are doing this on another planet that's already essentially trying to kill you, it's a really, really tough challenge. The way so, the way I've seen it described is that um, it's it's not so much 
that, that at a certain point you're never going to get the dirt completely separated from your living quarters. And so it's almost more of a of a what can we do to combat the issues that this dirt is going to cause? Yeah, than... have some sort of chemical scrubbing process that sure. could make this uh, inert. Or, or, or some kind of medical process that we can act upon the poor human people that are out there. Gotcha. Because it's gonna it's gonna affect them. Right, right. So yeah, to 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 even think that we could create a system that would negate all of this is probably being a little too wishful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You definitely can't just assume that because as soon as you do, then tragedy can strike. Right. Uh, well, there there are other challenges as well, not just the the dirt. Uh, there's also radiation. Yeah, and, before you even get to the planet. Yeah, because a, a journey to Mars is going to take months, uh, and that's because the way that Mars and Earth line up. You have to figure out the right trajectory to launch to get from Earth or even Earth's orbit uh, to Mars in the most efficient way possible. So when the Curiosity rover launched, you know, if you were to look at the closest point between, well, when Earth and Mars were closest together, if you were somehow able to maintain that distance and go from Earth to Mars, it might take you a few months to get there. It took Curiosity rover more than, well, I think, like eight months to get there. And right. you might say, well, why is that? So, well, it's because we can't get those plants to stop moving. They keep going around the sun. Which and they... continues moving through space itself. So what you're talking about is trying to create a trajectory that's the most efficient pathway between Earth and Mars. And it's not uh, it's not a straight line because you can't do that. You, you, know, you would end up being where Mars was as opposed to where it is. So you have to actually aim for where Mars will, will be. be. So uh, that means that your journey through space is going to take some time. If, if, if you did it at the speed of light, it would be 14 minutes. Right. We cannot go at the speed of light. Right. So it's going to take months to get there. And uh, the downside of that is that space has got some nasty radiation out there that can kill you. Um, so if the vacuum is not bad enough... The radiation is is worse. So on Earth, we are very well protected. In fact, one of the reasons why we have life as we know it here on our planet is because our planet has two things really helping us out. One is the atmosphere we have, which helps uh, uh, reduce the energy of any incoming radi- radiation particles coming into the atmosphere. It slows stuff down. Um, and then also we have a magnetosphere, this magnetic field that surrounds the Earth that repels a lot of the particles that otherwise would b- bombard our planet. Mars has a very thin atmosphere, so it's not as uh, protective, and there is no magnetosphere around Mars. So there's not that magnetic, you know, you can think of it almost like a force field. There's not that magnetic field that can repel uh, uh charged particles as they come blasting through space. And what's blasting them, you might ask? The sun. Yep. Yep, the same thing that that allows life to happen here on Earth in almost every case. I mean, there's some some life out there that that relies on chemicals that are produced geothermically, but but most of it is through some kind of root of photosynthesis and then eating things that are, photosynthesize. Right, exactly. So, uh so the sun is responsible for most of the life on Earth. Uh it's also blasting out stuff that would kill you. Now you might think, well, what about people who are aboard the space station? How do they uh, managed to stay up there so long. It's a lot of shielding. A lot and, of shielding, and, and they're still inside the magnetic field of Earth. Correct, and they're so, really only supposed to stay there for a few months at a time. Yeah, it's six, one of one of the many so. reasons why they try to bring people back pretty right, frequently. Right. Yeah, another one being things like bone loss, which you can suffer if you're out in space for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, so if you are going out from Earth to Mars, 
you will eventually get to a point where you leave Earth's magnetic field while you're in space. And once you leave that magnetic field, the only protection you have from this kind of uh, radiation, this cosmic radiation, and and it's radiation in a different form than, you know, it's not energy beams coming at you like you would think in a, in a 1950s science fiction film. Uh, cosmic radiation or cosmic rays are not made up of light energy. They're actually uh, the nuclei of atoms like hydrogen and helium and iron that are traveling at hundreds of thousands of kilometers per second through space that have been ejected by the sun and uh, that the in fact the University of Rochester Medical Center published a study not that long ago that suggested that long exposure to this kind of radiation could increase the risk of developing diseases like Alzheimer's huh so uh you know exposure to this stuff is is dangerous mm-hmm. so you would have to build some form of shielding within your spacecraft so that if there were a period of cosmic radiation you know, the sun's not constantly blasting this stuff out it comes in these little short bursts mm-hmm. uh, but if you were to detect such a burst coming at the spacecraft you would have to be able to go into a specially shielded compartment and wait it out and it usually lasts a few hours so actually <laughs> mars 1 is fairly cavalier in saying like it wouldn't be a very comfortable uh situation you'd be kind of in cramped quarters for about you know three or four hours but you know after it's over you could come out uh it sounds to me like you'd be essentially knee to knee with the other astronauts Mm, waiting mm -hmm. for uh waiting for this to finish well but you're clearly best friends with them after going through six years of extensive training uh on a desert base on earth hoping no one tv cameras in your face yeah because no one ever cracks under that kind of pressure right and hoping that no one had the um the chili uh uh space meal just (laughs) before you had to go in there yeah space chili uh be bad Boy, Chris would have appreciated that joke like crazy. Well, anyway, that's something you would really have to deal with uh, on that whole trip from Earth to Mars. Once you get to Mars, the thin atmosphere does provide some protection. Uh, in fact, I saw one report that suggested that uh, information from the Curiosity rover may show that it's non-lethal levels of radiation. Now, that does not mean that they're, they're good w- for you. Yeah, it, you might it might still increase your chances of developing certain diseases, but they it wouldn't outright kill you like there. There are radiation levels that are so high as to give you radiation poisoning, which can be lethal. Uh, but the, the point that he was making was that uh, they aren't that intense on Mars. Now, we're recording this uh, just uh, a day before NASA releases more information about the radiation on Mars. So um, by the time you hear this, we'll know more about it. But Lauren and I don't because we can't see into the future. So how does Mars 1 expect to deal with the radiation problem on Mars? Well, e- even with it being non-lethal, obviously you don't want to have prolonged exposure to radiation if you right, can help right. it. Yeah. So they are proposing that they will have the habitat part of Mars 1, the place where the astronauts actually look, or the colonists, if you prefer, where they actually live and do most of their work, will be underground. So somehow, using rovers, mm-hmm. uh, they're going to launch rovers up before they la- uh, right. launch any astronauts. Along with some supplies and stuff like right. that In to, fact, to I go think, out first. I think the first, the first scheduled landing would be just supplies, and then the second round would have the first rover landing. The rovers are going to be these robotic uh, rovers, just kind of similar to the Curiosity rover, but with a lot of construction ability. Like they'd obviously have to be able to dig out and put up structures 
for the uh, the incoming colonists. The idea being that the colonists would arrive and mostly everything would already be together. Uh, right, right, yeah. The uh, I've got a little bit about the timeline. Do you want me to? Well, yeah, sure. We can talk a little bit about that and then sure. jump back to uh, to this. But it will, well, let me just say this. The whole idea about putting it underground is that by being under the soil, which we've already established is dangerous stuff all on its own, the soil would protect against radiation. And that, uh, according to Mars One's uh, frequently asked questions section, five meters of soil, which is about 16.4 feet of soil, would be equivalent to being protected by Earth's atmosphere and magnetosphere. So they would dig down five meters and put the habitats that far down. So almost two stories, if you're thinking of, uh, of, a, of a building. So you would imagine that you would arrive on Mars and then go down two flights of stairs and be two flights of stairs underground, and that's where you live. Right. The, uh, the idea is to um, uh, launch supply missions starting in 2016, um, a rover launch in 2018, um, also starting at that point a live video stream. From, from the rover, which features heavily in their their stated timelines on their website, which cracks me up just a little bit. And I understand that this is how they're making money, but it's, you know, they're very like scientific advancement live on video. Yeah. And I don't know. It's it. it yeah. I mean, it tickles me. Um, but you know, uh, we're in that post real world world, I guess. Yeah, it's it's, it's true. Um, but uh, so. So, yeah. So and then twenty 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 one would be when um, the settlement components would launch, including two living units, two life support units, more supplies, and a second rover, along with a second video stream. Right. Um, and then, yeah, and then again, like we said, uh, 2022 would be when the astronauts would launch, and 2023 would be when they would land, along with um, five other cargo missions that year. Yeah, and the rover's job would be to actually collect those uh, those, those bits that landed, and, yeah, and to put them together and to assemble them, and and I, I, that blows my mind. The idea of a rover capable of of uh, maneuvering, lifting, carrying, and positioning these various uh, modular components so that it can make a living space for the astronauts by the time they land. That's a really sophisticated job for a robot to do. And, and robotics is advancing continually, but they're talking about launching this critter in, in 2018. That's five years off. Right, which means that they have to start building it right now. Mm-hmm. They can't, you know, these things take a lot of time because they have to build it. They have to test it, mm-hmm. make sure that it's going to withstand the pressures that it needs to, that it can actually fulfill the functions of the mission before they even try and launch one. And, of course, this also all assumes that all these launches are successful. Of course. And, and, I mean, we certainly hope they are, but there's never a guarantee. You know, you can never be completely certain. Uh, going back to the Mars One fact about uh, the the radiation, they also had this helpful section, which I found, uh, again, a little scary. It says, as described in an FAA and university study from 2005, a journey to Mars and back, in the case of the study totaling 536 days in space, would mean the chance of contracting cancer for 25 to 34-year-olds is around 10% for men and 17% for women. But let's compare it to people who do not go to Mars. In their lifetimes, men have a 12% chance of contracting prostate cancer and women have 12.5% chance of developing breast cancer. 
Or let's compare it to people who smoke. Smoking more than five cigarettes a day leads to a 24.6% chance of developing lung cancer for men in their lifetimes and 18.5% for women. And finally, our astronauts will spend only 210 to 220 days in space compared to 536 days in the study mentioned above. Staying in Mars will result in much lower doses, even if astronauts stay for a long time. Uh, these these numbers, um, I, I didn't actually. I you, you had put them in our notes, and I and I kind of glanced over them, and I was just noticing that that's not necessarily those numbers don't all align because we're talking about very specific different types of cancer caused by very specific carcinogens. Not to mention different time frames. They talk about how the chance over a of, lifetime versus over and a lifetime age over, groups. And yeah, exactly. A lifetime versus a trip. So like, this is this is a tiny bit misleading and um, I, un, I, un, so shockingly unscientific for a group of people who are looking to go to Mars. Right. Yeah. When you say a tiny bit misleading, you are understating it drastically. I think I think you're giving them too much credit because uh, and I mean I, I want us to have colonies on the moon and on Mars. Trust me. I think that that would be amazing and a phenomenal human achievement. Oh, of course. But I don't think we get there by downplaying some of the very real uh, uh, challenges we face. And and the way that this is worded, I agree with you, Lauren. This is not a very realistic... Like It's, it's like smoke and mirrors, right? Because yeah. you're, you're saying... Hey, look, you might have a, if you were in going on the space, you might have a, a 70% increase in developing cancer, but throughout your life, you could have this much. Yeah, but we're not talking about throughout my life. I'm talking about like on a road trip. <laughs> it's also, especially when you're, when you're recruiting essentially civilians to, yeah. to get into this project, it's, it's so hazardously misleading to put those kind of numbers in someone's head without without that's that's irresponsible is what that is yeah. when you're encouraging 18 year olds to hop on YouTube and, and apply for your program and you're and you're basically lying to them with statistics right you're, if you're not lying I'm sorry I just, I, just, I just went off a little bit you're that certain, was, no whew. you should you should no that's why I included it's that usually what Jonathan does yeah that's why I included those bullets because when I read that I had that same reaction that you did but I also you know took a Benadryl before I came in here, so I'm a little calmer. <laughs> I wasn't doing it to calm myself down. I was doing it because, you know, spring has sprung. So uh, then let's talk about life support systems. Now, uh, I was very curious to hear how they were going to provide life support on Mars. We've already ascertained the soil is dangerous. The uh, atmosphere is not breathable. Mm -hmm. So how do you... You know, and, and getting supplies from Earth, while that will continue to be a thing... Obviously, that's not going to be steady and constant. You're right. going to get them in in bursts of deliveries and that you have to have some sort of self-sustaining element or else, you know, what happens when It's like people... Oregon Trail. Yeah. Eventually, what, everyone gets dysentery. What, I mean, exactly, not exactly. Space dysentery. What happened? Well, my, my question is if let's say that let's say that you don't have that self-sustaining element there. What happens when the television show gets canceled? Hmm. Hmm. Right. That's that's a sobering thought. I yeah. mean, the main way that they're going to be able to to, to have the money is through to keep people alive on another planet is through television. If people stop watching television, people die. Right. I mean, that's that's what the, the story is. So you have to have some sort of self-sustaining element to it or else you're you are consigning people to, to death. potential Nielsen rating actual death. death. Yeah, like yeah. your show died, so did your astronauts. Right. I mean, that's terrible. But anyway, so so they have addressed that, and this is how they plan on providing life support. So 
what are the things they're going to need? They're going to need water. Uh, well, they're saying what they're going to do is they're going to extract water from the soil of Mars, this incredibly uh, toxic stuff. Uh, what, what, but, but we know that Mars has some ice on it. Sure. So the plan is to dig up huge amounts of dirt and put them through what are called extractors. And the extractors will heat up the soil, which will melt the ice and turn it into water vapor. Uh, it will then condense and filter that water vapor to turn it back into water. And then uh, that water will become the drinking water and also the water for the food supply aboard uh, the colony, aboard at the colony. And uh, the idea would that be that each life support unit on Mars would have about 1,500 liters of reserve water, as well as the water that's actually uh, providing to the colony on a daily basis. So that way, uh, it, by the way, they're getting power through solar panels. That's the idea is they use, they use solar panel arrays to generate the electricity they need to run the colony. But in the case of something like a dust storm where you don't get that solar power, you have to be able to still have access to the things that keep us alive. Right. Or you've just, again, killed the entire colony. Uh, so that that's how they're answering water. So what about oxygen? Well, oxygen, they're also looking at the water. Some of that water that they will be gathering from the soil, they expect to pour some energy into it to break those molecular bonds. And we know that the two uh, elements that make up water are hydrogen and oxygen. So you release hydrogen and you release oxygen. The oxygen you then mix with nitrogen, which you can get from Mars's atmosphere, and make it into an a breathable mix because pure oxygen would not be a good idea. Uh, you want to mix that, you know, here on Earth, the most abundant element in our atmosphere is nitrogen. Mm-hmm. You know, some people don't know that, but that's in fact it's what it pure is. Pure oxygen will mostly get you high. Yeah, and then dead. And if, then you know, dead you can, pretty quickly. Yeah, you can't have, you can't have pure oxygen, um, for long anyway. So you would mix that together to make the habitat's air supply, not the band. And then finally, uh, where are they getting the food? And some of the food's coming from Earth and it'll be supplied, but that's supposed to be the, you know, kind of like emergency rations. Sure. The plan is to use hydroponic farms. Hydroponic farms don't require soil to mm-hmm. grow plants and to use special LEDs to uh, provide the specific wavelengths of light that those plants will need to grow. Mm-hmm. So these LEDs will, uh, because they're LEDs, they draw very little power, so mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about running a whole lot of power to them. Uh, they will then uh, give that, that specific wavelength that will give the plants the, the best chance to really grow in that environment. And since, since we're doing this all of this underground, you don't have the uh, cheery Martian sunshine to, uh, right. to fuel your... Right, exactly. So, so you've got, uh, you're, you're doing it all inside. That will also mean that, uh, it'll use the carbon dioxide generated not just by people breathing, but they'll, they'll also harvest, uh, CO2 from the Martian atmosphere as well. And so that, that's how they answer the water, oxygen, and food problems. Uh, that sounds like a, an oversimplification to me too. Again, this is talking about systems that we have not, we've proven that they can work on Earth, but, you know, to expect that all of these are going to work on Mars is, uh, uh, I mean, I would hope they would, but it seems very optimistic, especially within the timeline that they have granted, uh, because we haven't run those kind of tests to make sure that we could do this kind of thing. Um, and I would kind of want us to have a pretty confident, a pretty high confidence level that it would work. Before if I were we one of the astronauts, it. especially, I would want that thing. And they're yeah. talking, they're talking about the habitats and the rooms that they're in being in these inflated, uh, uh, essentially kind of like inflated tents in a way, 
which makes me wonder how they design it so it can withstand the fact that there are nearly 17 feet of soil on top of them. All the all the all the uh, artistic drawings of of the plans that I've seen have have been these these kind of bubbly little capsules above ground. So I'm not sure. Well, and those are supposed to be the other like the life support units and oh, stuff. Okay. The habitats, the places where oh, okay. people live, sure. are right. supposed cool. to be. Blown. Underground, like if you look at sure. some of those pictures, you'll see like there there seems to be something that looks like a tunnel that's built okay. up, a dome of earth. That's cool. But yeah, I don't. I, I don't well, know. I mean, you know, and it's I think it's fair to to kind of put this stuff out there, and and especially since they're doing this essentially for profit, um, and it's all proprietary, keeping everything a little bit close to the chest. I could I could devil's advocate being part of their strategy. Well, and also there's there's an argument that you can make saying that uh, we're working on the initial stuff now. We have the plan to launch by 2023. And between now and then, we may have developed the technology necessary to meet those challenges. I guess. I mean, this <laughs> is the same sort of thing we hear asteroid It's a lot of mining. questions, right? Yeah. yeah and yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's my, my biggest question, honestly, is, is why we're looking at Mars and not, say, the moon. I have that same question. I think, well, I mean, you've got some other problems with the moon. Sure. Obviously, oh, things absolutely. Like, you know, you I, the, have a one-sixth the Earth's gravity, for example, mm-hmm. which, again, raises the question of things like bone loss. The moon is actually more toxic than Mars, from what I understand, um, in terms of the, the um, particulate. But it's also com- much closer. Very much closer. If things go wrong, it's a lot easier to correct. Right. Yeah, um, you're talking we and we've already got the the experience of sending people there and coming back. You know, uh unless you believe the whole uh uh television studio thing. Right. Uh <laughs> but, we, but that, we did go to the moon in 1971, but the 1969 one was all in a movie studio. It was on Gentle Ben. <laughs> that that aside, I mean it's uh, my just just the ethical questions that this raises of whether or not it's it's okay to to a send people to Mars on a one way ticket at all and and b to do it under the the restrictions of reality TV. I mean, I think that anyone who's watched any amount of reality TV has seen that group breakdown that inevitably happens and is and is partially um I think fabricated for the enjoyment or or at least uh Schadenfreude of the viewers wherein the group just hates each other and and someone gets kind of lord of the flies out and I I just don't I don't I don't want to watch that. I I don't I mean I don't know like of, of course I want to watch people go to Mars that's terrific and fascinating and science and you right. know human exploration but at the same time I don't I almost don't that thinking about it makes me nervous for those poor people. And and you know it very well may be that the popular approach that they're taking this this kind of you know pop culture approach almost to the whole project uh is is really not indicative of how serious they are. So a lot of the judgments that we're making, a lot of the conclusions we are drawing it's all based off of the approach we have seen. So maybe a lot of our concerns that we've raised are already well in hand. We, you know, I, I'll, I'll go ahead and say that might be the case. Uh, and it very well could be that it's just our ignorance of the project that leads us to the skepticism. But anytime you're talking about people's lives, I think critical thought and skepticism need to be employed uh, fully so that you can make sure that these people know what they're doing. They are very serious about it actually succeeding. They're going to take 
every precaution they can to protect the people's lives who are involved. The, the mental and physical health of these people. And and to to if all of that pans out, then the potential scientific information we can get from this experiment would be amazing. It'd be sure. phenomenal. So I, I want it to work. I really do. And and like 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 we say a lot here and also on our other podcast forward thinking, even if it doesn't work out, um, even just trying could lead to terrific scientific advancements. Right. And I, I mean, the space industry alone has created so many different advancements in technology and just things that we rely on on a daily basis now that that could very well be the case. So I really do hope that uh, that all of this is completely on the up and up and that uh, that we see some real results from this. Uh, I just you know, it's just got enough warning flags for me to be really cautious about it. But uh, at the same time, like if there's no risk, there's no reward. Right. Right. And I know that there are a lot of astronauts out there who have done some phenomenal things that a lot of us would consider crazy. I mean, it would just sure. People from from the test pilots who were first testing the 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 spacecraft before it ever left the Earth's atmosphere to the, the the people who have gone up to the moon or the International Space Station these are phenomenal feats and they require a great deal of courage and determination more than I possess frankly oh certainly uh, me as well and I think it would be a shame to not encourage that I definitely want to see that kind of indomitable spirit continue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to make sure that it's the right the right project. Sure. And uh, and so far I'm not fully convinced with Mars 1. That's not to say that maybe in a year maybe I'm I'll be I'll say oh they've met every single one of my concerns with flying colors and now I'm totally on board. It could happen, but uh but Still we'll, on we'll have rocket. to we'll have to see what it de- what, what develops. Yeah. What would yeah. it take for you to go to Mars, Lauren? I would not go to Mars. I, I, I mean, yeah. I just, nope. Yeah, me Sorry. neither. I mean, I, especially under there the restraints. A... I mean, to, to be fair, I also would not appear on a reality TV show, period. So Not with that attitude. <laughs> News for you, Lauren. There are cameras everywhere. I've been doing the How Stuff Works reality TV show. We launch any minute now. It's mostly us sitting at our desks with headphones on, not paying attention to each other. It's not terribly exciting, I'll admit, but, you know, I've got high hopes. I mean, I, you occasionally see things like Josh talks to Chuck. I, I expect that to drive a lot of views. Uh, I also would not go to Mars unless there was a return ticket, in which case maybe. But um, but with no return ticket, nah, all my stuff is here. So that alone makes it really hard for me to say goodbye. I don't um, know. Yeah. I not just... that I'm a materialist, but come on. You know, my Xbox is over here. I, I worked hard on that gamer score. It's, it's totally a lie. I've got a terrible gamer score. <laughs> well, anyway... That's our, our overlook of, of Mars One. I really do hope that it, if this doesn't work out, I hope some other project that kind of takes uh, note of it and, and tries to address some of the concerns that we have and approach it from a different way. I hope that happens uh, or that they uh, answer my concerns and that, and that this all works out because that would be phenomenal. So um, we'll have to wait and see, find out if this actually pans out. 
And, uh, and guys, if you were interested in this topic, let us know what you thought. Let us know, would you go to Mars? Is that something you would be interested in doing? Would you be able to say goodbye to everything else and, and spend the rest of your life on a totally different planet? Have, I mean, have any of you applied yet? Yeah, we want to hear from you. Let us know. You can write us. Our email address is techstuff at discovery.com or drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle there is techstuffhsw. We look forward to hearing from you and we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.